0: Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Our gospel reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, a parable that may be familiar to many of you, a parable you may guests from uh, our liturgy so far and message with the children often known as the parable of the prodigal son. Listen again for God's holy word. All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told them this parable. A certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a faraway land. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country and he began to be in need he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and he didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, Look, I've served you all these years, and I've never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the holy gospel. Praise to you, O Jesus Christ. Well, this Lent, our theme, is full to the brim. And we're celebrating the Ways that our lives are full to the brim with God's expansive grace. And that expansive grace is on full display in our scripture readings this morning. In the reading from 2 Corinthians that Marianne read earlier, Paul writes, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. And then in the parable of the prodigal son, We see the embodiment of that expansive grace in the father, in a dad who welcomes his son home with open arms, who reconciles with him and doesn't count his sin against him. These are beautiful examples of the kind of full-to-the-brim grace that God prodigally pours out on each of us. And so I could just preach about that for the next 12 minutes or so. I could just simply reiterate the love and grace that the Father offers the Son in the parable is the same love and grace that God pours out on you, because it's true. But honestly, that feels too easy, especially in Lent. And these are complex passages that demand more of us, that call us to respond to that expansive grace so, while I hope you do hear that God's expansive grace is for you this Lent, I hope you'll also keep listening about how that grace spills over into our daily lives. Both of these texts center on reconciliation, and they proclaim that reconciliation is a life and death matter. At the end of the parable, the Father says, We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and now is alive. And Paul talks about dying and rising with Christ. He says one died for the sake of all, therefore all died. And that if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away and look, the new things have arrived. So reconciliation begins with death, with dying to our old selves and our old ways of living that are rooted in sin and that leads to new life, to a new creation grounded in God's mercy and love and justice. That sounds beautiful, but let's be real. The work of dying and resurrection is complicated And messy work. Let's consider a real-world case study. Next month will mark the 28th anniversary of the first truly democratic election in South Africa. For hundreds of years, native South Africans and other people of color in South Africa experienced racism in many forms, including official policies of apartheid enforced by both the government and churches. So in 1994, when Nelson Mandela, a black native South African, was elected president, in many ways it felt like the beginning of a new era. And yet in other ways, this election was just a first faltering step towards reconciliation in a country that was still deeply divided. Mandela knew that people would not just join hands in harmony because he was the president. And so they devised a a process, a structure for that work of reconciliation, and it was led by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The commission was chaired by the Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and they had three main goals. First, to bear witness to human rights violations that had happened under apartheid. They did this by listening by telling the truth, by hearing the stories of people who had suffered under apartheid, as well as the confessions of those in power who had enforced it. It even included a public register so that ordinary South Africans could express their own personal regret and remorse for their own failings. The second task was to determine reparations. This included not just monetary reparations, but also measures intended to restore the dignity of people who had been dehumanized by apartheid. And the commission's final goal was to evaluate and rule on applications for amnesty. In other words, they decided whether or not to legally pardon those who had committed crimes in the apartheid regime. The aim of the commission's work was nothing less than a new country, a new creation. It was a beautiful vision, but it's one that demanded a painful and messy process to get there. Another one of the key faith leaders in South Africa's reconciliation movement was Reverend Alan Busak. And a few years ago, he co-authored a book on biblical reconciliation with my friend and mentor, Reverend Dr. Curtis DeYoung. In the book, they point out that the Greek word used in Scripture for reconciliation literally means to change or to exchange. And so they define biblical reconciliation this way. Reconciliation can be understood as exchanging places with the other overcoming alienation through identification solidarity restoring relationships positive change new frameworks and a rich togetherness that is both spiritual and political in other words recon- reconciliation requires us to change because we've seen ourselves and the world through someone else's eyes and they call this radical reconciliation saying that radical reconciliation creates a new humanity where the powerful and the powerless exchange places in order to find oneness through just social relationships. And even though it's biblical, the authors argue that radical reconciliation isn't actually the prevailing approach to reconciliation in the church today. Instead, they say that the church most often practices a kind of superficial reconciliation that they term Christian quietism. Essentially, Christian quietism seeks cheap grace, expecting those who have been wronged to forgive and forget without reparation or justice, It seeks to avoid conflict rather than engaging in the difficult, costly, and uncomfortable work of justice. And in the end, Christian quietism can't bring true reconciliation because it ignores the sinful realities of systemic injustice. When we read the conclusion of the parable of the prodigal son, we might feel a little uncomfortable with the anger of the older brother. We might even find ourselves feeling a bit of contempt towards him. We want him to just go into the party, to forgive his brother with the same grace that his father did, to welcome him home and celebrate his return. But I wonder, is that the work of Christian quietism in us? When we find ourselves wishing that conflict would be resolved, forgiveness extended, and everybody happy and smiling, all without ever having to deal with the messy stuff. In other words, reconciliation without confession, repentance, reparation, and justice, that's Christian quietism. But can we put ourselves in his shoes for a moment? The older brother, that is. Can we exchange places with him? Imagine what it must have felt like for him when the servant comes out and tells him that his father has just kicked off a party for his irresponsible brother before the sweat from yet another day of hard labor in his father's fields has even dried from his brow. He has toiled and suffered while his brother lived as he pleased. And now his brother's getting a free pass. If we could only exchange places with the older brother and understand things from his perspective, then perhaps we might empathize a little more with his anger. We might understand why he's not ready to join the party just yet. Now, if we read this parable as merely the story between two brothers, It's hard to extrapolate its meaning beyond the resolution of a family squabble. But, of course, Jesus doesn't intend for us to take his parables so literally. They're never really about the ordinary situations they describe. Jesus wants us to see something more, something much bigger. And reading this parable at the end of this week, A week when we watch history in the making as the United States Senate conducted a hearing to confirm the first black woman justice in the 200-year history of the Supreme Court. And a week when we witnessed how she was treated as less than. This week, I can't help but consider what this parable has to teach us about the possibility of radical racial reconciliation in 21st century America. For those of us who are white and who are finally acknowledging the pervasiveness of racism and white supremacy in our country, we may identify more with the prodigal son, recognizing that we haven't earned everything we've received, admitting the folly of our prior ways of thinking and acting, eager to be welcome home, to be accepted as friends and allies. And I imagine that at least some of our black and indigenous siblings and siblings of color may feel more like the older son in the parable, angry at the injustice and unequal treatment, frustrated by the notion that we seek to receive immediate absolution without any cost to us, unsure about joining the welcome home party before we've demonstrated any intention to change our ways or repair the harm we've done. The parable ends with the older brother sitting outside by himself. I find myself longing to hear the rest of the story. I want to listen in on the conversation between the two brothers when they finally see each other face to face again what was said, and what was left unsaid. Did the younger brother ask for forgiveness? Did the older brother forgive him? Or would he have to earn back his brother's trust slowly over time? Was there hope for radical reconciliation? Hope that the younger brother would be able to exchange places with his older brother to understand his suffering enough to realize that true reconciliation between them would need to go far beyond a contrite heart and a simple apology. And as I wondered about the epilogue to this story, it occurred to me that my curiosity was really about whether there's hope for radical reconciliation for us as a church, as a society. If there is, I think we'll need to embrace a difficult and messy process towards reconciliation. But I think the good news is that there are are others who are doing this work who we can learn from. I'm excited to share with you that one of the co-authors of Radical Reconciliation, Curtis DeYoung, will be our guest preacher here at Fairmount on Pentecost Sunday in early June. Rev. Dr. DeYoung currently serves as the CEO of the Minnesota Council of Churches, an ecumenical, multiracial movement representing more than a million Christians across their state who are leading the faith community's work towards racial justice there. And Curtis will not only preach in worship from this pulpit that Sunday, he'll also be giving a lecture the day before about their Truth and Reparations Initiative A 10-year plan of truth-telling, education, and racial reconciliation that their churches have worked uh, to develop in the wake of George Floyd's murder there in 2020. I'm looking forward to hosting him and to learning from their experience and to be inspired for what it might look like to do something around reconciliation here in Cleveland. Friends, having been reconciled to God by the expansive grace of God alone, we are called to be ambassadors of God's message of reconciliation here and now. And if we take that call seriously, I believe there is hope for radical reconciliation. But to do so means a painful and messy path towards healing. And so I close with the words of the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu and ask us all to consider in our own hearts if we're prepared to do this work together. Forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones is not about pretending that things are other than they are. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. It is a risky undertaking, but in the end it is worthwhile because in the end only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.